Hello, Lady Gay listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to give you a heads up that Dennis, Chris, and I will all be at the Focus SLS conference in Phoenix this year. On January 1st at 4.15 p.m., we will be doing a live podcast from the podcast booth. If you can't make it to the podcast, but you're still going to the conference, come say hi to us at our booth. Dennis and Chris will both be there. You can ask them as many questions as you want. Uh, Don't tell them I said that, but you can. And this week, we take another step out of our mini-series to talk about some recent comments by Pope Francis about the nativity scene. So without further ado, episode 13 of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. So uh, I went to Marytown, the shrine, and they have this little gift shop there, and I bought this little uh, Advent wreath candle holder and bought the three purple candles and the one pink, and it got everything set up, and they had this little um, booklet, like an Advent booklet. It gives you these like prescribed prayers and stuff, so I said, this is our first year doing this with all the kids, so let's do a, kind of something simple this year, and then I can add stuff. So we go through it, and then um, at the very end, the first time we did this, uh, so one of the kids, Agnes, gets to light the candle in the beginning, and then Isaac gets to blow the candle out. So they love their like little rolls that they have to do. And, uh, and then at the end, when the candle uh, blew out, Isaac noticed all the smoke rising from the wick like after the flame went out and he was like, Whoa. And I was like, yes, that's cool. Right. That's all of your prayers going up to heaven. And you should have seen Agnes's eyes. Like they were, she was just like, really? That's my prayers going. And so now every night we do this, they blow the candles out and like, we'll have a guest over like my mother-in-law or my, my brother-in-law or something. And she tells everybody, Hey, those are our prayers going up to heaven. Well, make so, sure she understands it's the external sign of the invisible oh, spiritual reality of her prayers going up there. Yeah. 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 Oh, you, of, course. To a of course. Of yeah, course. I was explaining it to you guys, but you don't understand that. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't yeah, want to exactly. go over your head. Mm-hmm. Just like it, your prayers. It is a, it's a good intro, though, to this uh, letter on the nativity scene that yeah. Pope mm-hmm. Francis just wrote. What's the title, Dennis? It's Admirabile Signum. What's and that let me say, mean? he crushed it. Uh, that's uh what does that just mean an admirable sign admirable means something more than just admirable right it's a stronger word than that they render it here enchanting image Mm -hmm. you know just like uh jesse and agnes's and the weilers uh smoke is an image of their prayers rising up to heaven this is a very sacramental sort of take on the nativity scene by pope francis that it's an enchanting image a sacramental sign of Christmas, so uh, I love it. Very good, yeah. Well, sounds good, guys. All Have right. a good one. <laughs> <laughs> the and point you know, is, the point is, Jesse, yeah. is that you've done wrong by using the wreath. You should have gone for the nativity scene. Well, we're getting there. We're. I'm, I just bought the Lego nativity, and it's uh, hasn't arrived yet. 
You know, I looked up admirably while we were talking about here, and it's, it's been surprising, astonishing, rare, strange, wonderful, worthy of admiration. And so uh, this kind of thing, we just sort of used, well, let's set up the cute little cows and the shepherd boy and the Mary and Joseph, and we'll put baby Jesus in the you know manger on uh, Christmas Day. And it's just sort of like hang a wreath, put up the crasher. But he's trying to bring us back here to this like essential notion. What is... Could you say mystagogical interpretation of, of uh, what's going on here? I think that's it exactly. But, you know, on, the, on that point, towards the end of the letter, he says, as always, God baffles us. He is unpredictable, constantly doing what we least expect. And that, that seems to be, you know, consistent with that definition. that you Right. And what would we least expect? If God's going to conquer the devil, he's going to show up with angels and swords and, you know, spiritual, whatever you call them, you know, a.k.a. 47, whatever they're called, and just blow the demons away, right? But it's like, no, I'm going to come as a little child. And I think people get romantic about mangers, you know, because manger doesn't really mean to us a food trough for a cow. But you live on a farm, Chris. What do the Mm -hmm. food troughs for cows, what are they like? Uh. Cows are stinky and dirty and muddy, and they get their waste all over themselves. And where they eat is not a cute little thing, right? Yeah. Well, you know, you've milked the cows up here too, Dennis. I mean, well, the, I just go down the cow and the yeah. stanchion and you, and they pour the grain down there. And while the cows do a very fine job of cleaning up uh, every last uh, kernel of corn or whatever it is, you're right. It's not the type of thing you would want to eat off of, let alone even sit on probably. Yeah. It's not a pleasant, uh, not a pleasant part. Yeah. Barns so. stinky, right? If you don't, if you haven't scraped out the hay and all that stuff, like they're stinky and messy and gross. So I needed to say God not only came to earth as a child, as a human, right? But then as a child, helpless, and then laid in the place where cows eat food. That's, that's kind of amazing. Chris, yeah, your, your okay. barns are really immaculate, though. <laughs> yeah, not that much. Not that much. <laughs> but on that point, at the, he cites St. Augustine. Uh, early on in the letter about uh, late in the manger, he became our food. Yeah. And so he's laid in a place uh, that's meant to feed animals. And this is in some ways why God became man, and especially in the Eucharist, which the Pope makes some uh, allusions to throughout this letter, is so that he could feed animals like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an admirable sign and a chanting image and also i never thought of this before is that the hay in which uh, you know kind of lined the manger is also you know associates him with uh, the wheat hay is from yeah you know, hay is from horses can't yeah. be from hey. wheat or barley you know uh, so already these eucharistic uh, connections uh, uh, are there all the way at the uh, at the birth of jesus and, you know, he doesn't say this, and I don't know if this is a stretch, but as I was reading this this morning, I was thinking, you know, what does it say in the book of Revelation at the end times? Who's going to eat hay instead of lambs? Oh, is it the lion? Yeah, the lions. All the carnivores are going to eat plants. Oh, like, that was just uh, read recently. Yeah. So, you know, here you have this kind of transformation of the world from the violence that is necessary in the fall mm. to this kind of peace that the Christ child can lay in this manger. Just to take this on another, not that that was a tangent, but this Yeah, I, th- I think it was. I've heard that, yeah, Bethlehem, that. I'd always heard it meant house of bread. Oh, yes, I've heard that too. But it also means apparently house of meat. Ooh, Ever heard that? No. Speaking of uh, really? lambs and lions both eating. Yeah. So McDonald's can change its name to Bethlehem and it'd be okay. Da, 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 Beth- da, da, well, they could start selling Bethlehem burgers. <laughs> no, this, those, oh, whopper, those whoppers right. are made out I of fake you- meat. 
credit for that one, Jesse. Thank Finally you. a Thank joke you. that I found amusing that you said. <laughs> After five years. Uh-huh. Oh, and wait, the recording's not turned on. <laughs> oh, no, man, you had me there. You had me. But well, now I have proof. Yep, you had me too. You had me at hello. You know, one of the things he mentions here, he talks about the how Francis, Pope Francis, no, not Pope Francis, St. Francis, um, sees this kind of living crash almost, and um, how the people there decided to have mass over a manger and try to make this living experience of of the, um, the birth of Christ. And then it becomes um, this sort of artistic uh, rendition. But he talks about a cave. And, you know, sometimes we see the, the nativity scene in a barn, but then you hear about caves a lot. Any thoughts on caves? Why it would be a cave and not just a little barn out in the backyard? Mm, no idea. I don't. I, oh, I oh, is it similar to, oh, is it because Jesus was buried in a cave? Will eventually be buried in a cave? tomb? It could be, or not only did he come to earth, but he entered into the darkest place of earth, right? So when you see mm-hmm. icons they'll, on the nativity, they'll often show this mountain with this uh, opening in it. And the inside isn't sort of just slightly darker gray, like the color of the mountain. It's black. It's the only one of the only places in icons where they actually paint black. And then the incarnation of the mm. Christ child is in this dark black place. Whoa. And I saw this when I was in the Holy Land, too. We were driving from Jerusalem down to Galilee. And you'll see to this day some rocky cliffs. And they'll build a fence out the front side of the cave. And then the animals can go in the cave, you know, if it rains or something. And then they have the walk around there. So the manger, the animals, the cave, the barn, it's kind of um, actually a real sort of archaeological thing in the Holy Land. So he makes a big deal about the simplicity, right? The humility of God who was worthy. I mean, who was, uh, what, loved us enough to become a little child. And he wants to go through some of these things. He says, it shows God's tender love that the creator of the universe lowered himself to take up our littleness. Here's the God of surprises again, right? If you've watched uh, Bishop Barron's Catholicism project, he talks about the the little child sneaks behind the enemy lines because everybody's expecting, you know, a triumphant general, so to speak. And then there's this little baby born uh, that the demons, you know, the forces of evil just barely noticed because it's not what they uh, expect. And it becomes part of God's plan to uh, to save us. Yeah, in that section two, that in some ways I thought that was... Um I don't know, kind of the, the kernel of this letter. So if this thing is called, what, enchanting image or uh, admirabile signum, is that it's, it's a, it becomes the sacramental expression of uh, God's great uh, love, that the, as you say, the creator of the universe, Lord himself, to take up our littleness. Uh, he says it's an image of uh, the history that took place at Bethlehem. So it's like a, uh, I suppose, literally an illustration of what the the pages of scripture say in words, the creche says in imagery, tangible imagery. So it's a, it's a sign of uh, salvation history, but also it's a, it's an admirable uh, image, uh, an enchanting image of the humility and poverty and self-denial that uh, he took on and that we need to take on uh, too. Right, so and I think a little bit of things. his... Uh... Ignatian spirituality comes out because he, he says the crush helps us to imagine the scene. And that is a classic um, oh, sure. Ignatian spirituality is when you go to pray, you kind of try to imagine what would it be like if one, two, three, and you try to sense the movements of your heart or whatever God wants to tell you in that moment. So this deep sense of the imagination is uh, how can we not just take this abstract idea, oh yeah, Christ came to earth, but to say, now I can actually hold this in my hands. I think he says more than once, it allows us to touch and see and answer these questions that um, that the, the incarnation uh, solves. And he goes through some of the attributes of the of the crash, or what called the presepio, sometimes more elaborated scene, uh, one at a time. 
And he starts with the dark, starry sky, Chris. The darkness and the silence of night. This is in paragraph four. Yeah. No, I thought that was really good. And kind of the, uh, what, a part I underlined here is, you know, imagine yourself looking up into the magnificent uh, night sky that's all black, although you can see stars in it. And I don't know, maybe I'm unique here, but he, he lists these questions, you know, who am I? Where did I come from? Why was I born at this time? Why do I love? Why do I suffer? Why will I die? And so kind of when you're uh, confronted with that immensity of the night sky, these kind of big eternal questions or I don't know does that happen to you guys those come into your mind absolutely every <laughs> minute of every day <laughs> I know yes. why do I suffer when will I die <laughs> but no it's a great thing everybody's seen a manger scene a crash scene you know hundreds of times but that he says no 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 just hang, hang on a second look at the sky notice the sky and let that be an image of kind of these big eternal questions. Don't pass over it. But mm -hmm. even the sky says something. And, and the lights that kind of shine through with enlightenment uh, as well. Right. And if, we, and if our souls or our sense of ourselves is we're experiencing the darkness of night, that kind of silence, not be, being able to feel, sense, or hear God and all this darkness, he says this is the answer to that feeling and the questions associated with that feeling is God came into that darkness and he'll come into this darkness in, in any particular soul as well. Dennis, this next one, I had never, there's another thing I've never noticed. He says, the landscapes. Many, man, yeah, the landscapes. Is that true? Yeah, well, he says very often you see in the background of a, a nativity kind of Roman buildings that are falling down. That's a very common, you call it a trope, I guess, a common turn in um, a lot of Renaissance paintings. You'll have the Christ child, and in the background will be some Roman kind of building, but it's in ruin. And it's indicating that the new world has, has come in and the old world is falling uh, down and that fallen humanity, it, which always decays and disappoints, is going to um, be reborn through the uh, incarnation. So that's that's what he tries to bring, you know. And I think this is really good. How easy is it to just take the little things out of the box and set up the nativity scene, a cute little cow, ox, lamb, whatever, and then just leave it there? But to really meditate on the the meaning of the incarnation through this, it's a good idea. What else do you see in there? Well, paragraph five, he talks about cosmology. Um, he doesn't use the word cosmology, but he says, you know, you talk about mountains in the background, streams, sheep, shepherds, angels, that all of creation rejoices in the coming of the Messiah, the star, of course, the big star that the three wise men followed, but the other stars uh, as well. And then he goes right into this notion that the people who see Christ first are the powerful generals, the kings, the emperors, the queens. Who is it? Instead. What's the... It's the, it's the, the shepherds, the, the shepherds, the poor, this yeah. young boy, you know, watching the lambs. And then um, the kings, the three kings. Well, the th kings later, right. So first you have the poor who would really never be granted access, but eventually even the great and powerful come and kneel before uh, the Christ child. And, you know, there's a whole, I've heard many times people talk about shepherds. They lived out in the wilderness, basically, and they didn't bathe and they were dirty and they were kind of... Um, I don't know, excluded from society in some ways. You know, you'd have to come in and wash up and to be like dirty for, you know, weeks or months out in the wilderness dealing with, you know, animals all the time. And then this sort of unwashed, unkempt, no haircut, dirty clothes people are the first to see the Christ child. It's a beautiful thing. God comes into our brokenness and our dirtiness, so to speak, uh, to cleanse us and renew us. What about the chef, uh, the the kings, the magi's? Oh wait, we we've, we we skipped over Mary and Joseph. What? 
How could you do that? And baby Jesus. And the camel. A nativity scene is not complete without a. It's it's incomplete without a camel. And the angel hanging atop of it. I didn't see the Marian. Where's the Marian Joseph part? I didn't see. Uh, seven number seven. Oh, okay. So that's going forward too, right? So, um, but you know what? What's wrapped up in all of this is not so much interesting historical facts made real in little figurines that kids can appreciate. It's he calls it the revolution of love, the revolution of tenderness. That you know, Christ uh, has his arms out, waiting to be in a sense picked up by us, or for us to be in his arms. That just as he would do later on the cross. Um, so it's beautiful stuff, you know. And then a seven, Mary and Joseph. Mary's the mother who shows the child to the visitors, and that's interesting. You know, when a lot of times when people have newborns, I know this is not the case on your farm, where basically there's so many kids, Chris, that you just like hand babies to whoever will hold them. <laughs> Here, take this. But yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. that's a true story, actually. <laughs> I remember when Marguerite came home from one of like her seventh C-section, and I was there at your house. She's like, "Here, take this baby," and then she started cooking. Like walked in the door, probably still uh, recovering, and just handed a baby to somebody and started cooking so um you know but here she shows her newborn to all these visitors right and a lot of parents are a little skittish about that oh don't sneeze on my kid and all that stuff (laughs) but uh joseph is the guardian who protects the family and treasures in his heart all these mysteries and so uh you know there in paragraph eight the nativity becomes alive god appears as a child and the impossible is possible and it's true and it's right in front of us and he's smiling and opening his arms to all this undoes Jansenism, wouldn't you say, Chris? Jansenism, Jansenism. Uh, how do That's you my favorite ism. Are you forgetting what Jansenism is? Isn't that... Uh, oh, yeah. I was, You're going I was to hell if Pelagian. you forget what Jansenism <laughs> is. That's God is Pelagianism. so mad at you for forgetting what Jansenism yes. is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. This sort of post-Calvin kind of notion in Catholicism that God is waiting to be offended and that his majesty is so great that the slightest little fault of ours is going to make him really mad and he's going to sort of blow us up. This is the oftentimes the Catholicism of the 50s that a lot of older people are very unhappy with. But Francis, Pope Francis undoing that, you know, here is the God who loves us. Tenderness enters into a period of um, wanting to be with us, to be weak before us to allow us to pick him up as a little child and to, to be small before him. And this is what he says in you know, the end of eight. God's ways are astonishing. It seems mm-hmm. impossible that he should forsake his glory to become a man like us. Um, but he baffles us, as you said before, doing what we least expect. And so he invites us to be disciples, not by saying, do this because I'm God, right, or else. <laughs> but I'm a little baby and I'm cute. Pick me up and hold me in your arms. Uh, that's really a cool idea. Then he talks about the three kings. You probably know about the symbolism of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Have you heard of that before? Uh, yeah, well, let's see. I think he, uh, if I didn't, he talks about it too. The the gold honors uh, Christ's kingship mm-hmm. and uh, incense his divinity, like uh, Agnes's uh, smoke going up into the divine places, into the heavenly places. And the myrrh, people were buried with myrrh. Right, right, because myrrh is very, very fragrant. It's, it smells kind of like a rosy air freshener. <laughs> I remember being in the Holy Land with the seminarians years ago, and one Father Nick W., who I will not name, uh, well, let's call him N. Wickert. Of, of, of <laughs> I love that joke. I, know, I, knew, I did that for you, Justin. Oh, man. The, it, when you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's a big slab there, and it's, it's you know not literally the slab where Christ's body was laid out after his death, but it's presented that way. So you come in, you kneel down, you kiss it, but people pour this myrrh all over it, say this sort of oily liquid, and uh, Father N. Wickert um, leaned down onto it 
like his whole coat, his whole face, and his coat smelled like roses from then on. And you know, mm. he's a funny. He's a very manly priest, you know. And we used to tease him <laughs> like crazy. He smelled like an old lady all the time. But boy, that stuff smells, and it t- lasts for a long time. So if your body's going to decay and all that, they would put you in, uh, put all this myrrh all over you, and so it's associated with death and burial. It's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah, no, and they come a, from all it, over, right? These kings, they yeah. come from far away. And they go Learned, back. Learned, they're rich. They go home and they bring the, the stories, presumably, to the people uh, they know. Yeah, there's a line uh, somewhere in the Bible. I was going to talk about uh, one of these figures. They were amazed at what they saw. And somebody pointed out, well, what did they see that was so amazing? I mean, because on the surface of it, it really doesn't seem that amazing. You know, what appears to be an ordinary baby and kind of displaced parents and animals and shepherds and what what's so amazing about all of that yeah what is amazing uh, about I, that well but i think you know once you see beneath the surface and this is why this little reflection is it's worth going to find um these little meditations on the figures and scenes of the nativity if you can see it like um you know pope francis is helping to to lead us to see it like that then you can be ah this really is amazing once you stop and pause and reflect uh, on this uh, admirable sign. It, uh, it's very fruitful. Yeah, if you're a wisdom figure, you know, the Magi are wise men, right? That means that they're learned, they understand the stars, they're waiting for this king. And then they get there, and what do they see? A baby in a manger? This this is not what we expected, right? This is the god of surprises. And so uh, this is what Francis is saying. You know, we're reminded when we were children waiting to set up the, the crash. You know, and I remember when I was a kid, we had this Christmas tree that had all these different branches and uh, they had numbers on them. Was we, it a Jesse tree? It was not a Jesse tree. Was, oh, dang it. It was a fake Christmas tree, but you had to. we had to arrange them in little sections first in piles. And my father didn't want to do that. So my sister and I were all excited. And, you know, to, even when I visited my mom on Thanksgiving, I took out the uh, the crash and was, you know, put it on the windowsill. And it's just fun to sort of look forward to this every day. So what other aspect of scriptural stories do we actually sort of pull out and, and touch and hold and look at and look excitedly to uh, to do so, he's saying, do this. If you've forgotten to do this, Pope Francis, says, start doing it again. Teach it to your kids, teach it to your grandchildren, so that they can know that the God who became a child um, is still the God who loves us and wants to bring us back to Him. He wants us to experience God's love, to feel, he says, and believe that God is with us and we're with Him. And so, I think it's a great little reminder, you know, this this thing that we either do out of sort of routine or we don't do at all. To really look at it again, take the scales off our eyes and say, hey, this has a deep meaning of God who loves us and wants to be with us. And to sort of kind of bring Christ, put Christ back in Christmas, the bumper stickers say. I don't know if there's a a better way to do this outside of the liturgy itself than to really pay attention and think about the the admirabile signum of the crush. So enjoy that Advent wreath, Jesse. Oh, I will. Uh, All right. Should we answer a liturgy question? Yes, we should. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! 
Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Father Nick. Father Nick says, hello, liturgy guys. And I say, hello, Father Nick. <laughs> he says, at our parish, we celebrate the order of the blessing of an Advent wreath within Mass at every Mass on the first Sunday of Advent. I'm not sure what to think about the fact that we do this at every Mass and could use your help thinking this through. Insofar as the blessing actually blesses the wreath itself, it seems that it should only be done at one Mass. After all, why would you keep blessing the wreath at a later Mass if it's already been blessed at the first Mass? But insofar as the blessing is only blesses the people who are celebrating the lighting of the wreath at a particular Mass, which is what the words of the blessing seem to suggest, then it seems that it could be done at every Mass. What do you guys think? Thanks, Father Nick. I agree with you, Father Nick. I'm not quite sure what to think of that. Uh, All right. Thank you for your question. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I think you make some... some, there's some sound thinking to do both, I, I suppose. You know, there used to be, and it just doesn't seem to be in the church's lexicon anymore, what they would call invocative blessings and constitutive blessings. Uh, invoking, uh, it would be calling down, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a type of blessing upon a thing, yet a, a constitutive blessing is like an uber-invocative blessing. It constitutes the thing that is blessed as a sort of a different reality. Uh, in the current verbiage, we would simply just call these blessings versus consecrations. Uh, so, I mean, is the wreath somehow constitutively different after the blessing than it was before the blessing? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, why would we bless it next year, for example, if we blessed it this year Ooh, or two that years is a from good now, point. something like that? Uh, so you think, well, if nothing changes about the wreath, why do you bless it in the first place? And I think this kind of goes into the other point that Father Nick brings up is that, you know, sacramentals are meant for the sanctification of the people. Uh, and so, you know, the I wouldn't say that nothing gets blessed or rather the wreath doesn't get blessed but the people do i think sort of maybe the wreath is the occasion for for actual graces coming to the people so if that's the case then i i think it would be all right to to bless it at each of the different masses since there's nothing constitutively different about it as say there would be about the altar for example like if you're going to dedicate an altar you wouldn't dedicate it, you know, each of the each of the masses on a Sunday or something like that, because there's something sort of changed about it in itself, the altar. But I don't think it's the same with the Advent wreath. So, as I say, I'm with you, Father Nick. I'm not quite sure what to make of the practice, but I don't think it's unreasonable, which I guess is another way of saying I think it's reasonable that it would be blessed at each mass. So, I mean, you know how many I times think. I've received a blessing and, <laughs> and I'm still the take. same. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's because of that chrism oil. I'm a real slippery guy. Uh, but that makes a lot of sense. So thank you very much. Yeah. The, the, I tell you, these blessing questions are among the most difficult to answer. I believe uh, it. I think in, in, in the church today. Well, Father Nick, I hope that answers your question, or at least you're enlightened. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys, or you can hire a skywriter to hang out over Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin and ask Chris a question. I don't recommend that. It's very ineffective in terms of pricing. But uh, (laughs) thank you and God bless. Now that's a podcast.
The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>